Many of you are too young to remember the A-Team television show, but you are still likely familiar with the character played by Mr. T and his great catchphrase. What was it, everybody? Look at that. I'll put it a fool. That sentence became the uh, viral punchline of the age. I heard it spoken by every wrestler at every wrestling tournament in the 1980s. <clears throat> it, was, it was a kind of joke. You looked across at your opponent and said, I'll put it a fool. And, and it was funny. But being a fool is not really funny at all, not in real life. People like to think of foolishness as harmless. The, the fool is just a, a, a foppish, funny, juggling character who actually is kind of crafty and smart underneath, but that's a lie. In reality, fools are wrong-headed and wrong-acting. That is, foolishness begins in bad thinking and it ends in bad choices. So we really should pity the fool, but here's the worst part. Foolishness, foolishness is not just out there. It's in here. Foolishness is in my own heart. Of course, that brings up a natural question that you're all asking in your favorite Groot imitation. Um, I am Groot. Which, of course, we all know means, what is foolishness? What should I look out for? If I want to know the difference between foolishness and wisdom, what do I look for? I'm so glad you asked, Groot. Thank you. The Old Testament has a lot to say about foolishness. And today we're going to study one of the really pertinent passages. But first, let's consider one New Testament contribution. Okay, look up here, New Testament, Galatians chapter 6. You ask, what is foolishness? Here it is in a nutshell with the antidote. Take a look. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. That's foolishness. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. That's wisdom. Self-satisfaction leads to inevitable decay. Self-satisfaction leads to inevitable decay. Enjoying and pleasing the absolute almighty God instead leads to spiritual benefit. Immanuel Kant wrote one of the most famous commentaries on this verse. Uh, in his Metaphysics of Morals, Kant described two hypothetical business people. I summarized them for you in your notes. You got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up, look on the left-hand side, and you'll see Kant's two business people. One shopkeeper is honest and fair with his customers, but only so he can keep a good reputation and attract more business. The second shopkeeper, honest and fair as well, but his motive is respect for what is absolutely morally right. Though they appear the same, Kant goes on to state that only the second businessman is actually moral. He declared that a society built on the fake morality of the first shopkeeper would crumble from within. A society built on the second would prove long-lasting and, in fact, would, would influence others for eons to follow. Here's what's fascinating. Not long after Kant wrote that, most of the thinkers in Europe banded together to try and disprove him. They, they determined to show that a person could harvest blessings from sowing self-serving motives. They were, they were wrong. Thinkers like, uh, like Thomas Hobbes talked about nonsense like greed is good. Now, don't misunderstand. We mustn't ignore all the Enlightenment folks. They actually have some good ideas for us to consider. But they were wrong about Kant's commentary on Galatians 6.8. And here's the depressing truth. Kant has not influenced our current world very much. We can't be influenced by Kant very much. The other Enlightenment thinkers have influenced us. In fact, nearly every one of us here grew up burdened by the Habesian Enlightenment. It's so, folks, it so permeates our thinking, so much so that people actually want to believe that morality is a personal choice and not something that is absolute. 
For example, if you walk up to 100 people, a couple of studies I saw recently say this, if you walk to 100 people and you say this foolishness that I'm about to share, over 80 of them would agree with you. Over 80 of them would agree with this, and here's the foolishness. I am the prime generator. I'm the supreme soul. I'm the prime generator. Thus, anything is right for me if it advances my self-determined needs. Anything's right for me if it advances my self-determined needs. That dreck is so steeped in our minds, it can be hard. It can be very hard for me, for you, for Christians, to tell the difference between sowing to the foolish flesh, Galatians 6, 8, and pleasing the absolute morality of God's Spirit, which is wisdom. And that's where Proverbs comes in. The book of Proverbs teaches us how to recognize and avoid foolishness. Further, Proverbs shows us how to establish life practices that makes wisdom permanent. All right, open your Bible. Proverbs chapter 26. Go to Proverbs. It's right after Psalms in your Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 26. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Proverbs 26, 1 through 12. Like snow in summer and rain at harvest, honor is inappropriate for a fool. Like a flitting sparrow or a fluttering swallow, an undeserved curse goes nowhere. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness or you'll be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his foolishness. We'll explain in a moment. Or he'll become wise in his own eyes. The one who sends a message by a fool's hand cuts off his own feet, drinks violence. A proverb in the mouth of a fool is like lame legs that hang limp. Giving honor to a fool is like binding a stone in a sling. And it's talking about when you would put one in the ancient kind of slingshot and you would then zip it and, and kill someone with it. Uh, verse 9, a proverb in the mouth of a fool is like a stick with thorns brandished in the hand of a drunkard. The one who, passes, the one who hires a fool or who hires those passing by is like an archer who wounds everyone. As a dog returns to its vomit, gross, so a fool, I added that gross, by the way, sorry. Um, so a fool repeats his foolishness. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? <laughs> There's more hope for a fool than him. Now, what we just read is part of a unique collection in the Bible. Chapter 26 is part of a, a collection of Proverbs originally written by King Solomon and then gathered together under his descendant, King Hezekiah. The point of Hezekiah's collection is this. How we practice determines how we perform. Hezekiah's collection of Solomon's greatest hits takes a very mature approach to life, anticipating great legacies, Kant would be very proud, great legacies achieved through regular wisdom that is made permanent. As we summarize in your notes, Proverbs 26 contains the great Solomon slash Hezekiah primer on foolishness. First big idea in this is one that many advanced civilizations have struggled with. Verses 1 through 2 explain, don't give unearned trophies. This is a problem for advanced civilizations, and the motive has been the same all the way through the centuries. We want people to feel important. We have extra, we have money, we have power, we have authority, so we give it to those who can't handle it. It's a serious mistake, and it's a serious mistake whether you're giving every kid on the team a trophy that hasn't earned it or whether you're giving away cabinet positions in a kingdom. Now, I know, I know that surely elicits a question, one that you're asking in your, your baby group voice, I'm good, which is to say, isn't it important, though, to build up people's self-esteem? Isn't that important? The answer is no. It is not. It's deadly. Encourage people? Yes. Love, yes. Challenge, yes. Build up self-esteem, no. It's actually impossible because esteem is earned. Esteem is earned. 
When you give honor or authority to those who haven't earned it, you participate in a farce, and it is a dangerous farce. The danger in the text is palpable, at least to anybody who has spent any time around agriculture. Any of you, raise your hand if you've spent any part of your life around agriculture at all. Okay, good. All right, you city kids, listen up. Where it says snow in summer, that's deadly. Snow in summer kills important crops. Rain at harvest, we're learning this in Texas this fall, rain and harvest represents a life-threatening situation. This is very serious. Jonathan Satchel of our pulpit team sent me a great note about this. He said, Wayne, the Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life, the Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life, is a perfect example of giving authority to those who can't handle it. An allegory for fascism, the episode is about a young boy who has the power to wish things to happen supernaturally so that all the people of his small town are terrified of him. Let me, let me show you. This is right after he has turned a man that he didn't like into a jack-in-the-box. Really creepy. Take a look. He was a bad man, so I turned him into a jack-in-the-box. A jack-in-the-box that still had his bad face. And you mustn't think bad thoughts about me either, or I'll do the same thing to you. <laughs> Play some more music. It's good what you've done to Dan. It's real good. It was swell. It was just swell. It was really good. cities outside and and we could get real television things like that it's it's real good for you to say such a thing it's, it's real good but how can you mean it why anthony's television is much better than anything we ever used to get oh yes it's fine why anthony's television is the best television we've ever seen It's snowing outside. Anthony, are you making it snow? Yes, I'm making it snow. Why, that'll ruin half the crops. You know that, don't you? Half of the crops, that's what that'll... Dad. But it's good that you're making it snow, Anthony. It's real good. And tomorrow, tomorrow's gonna be a real good day. <laughs> No comment here. No comment at all. We only wanted to introduce you to one of our very special citizens, little Anthony Fremont, age six, who lives in a village called Peaksville, in a place that used to be Ohio. And if by some strange chance you should run across him, you had best think only good thoughts. Anything less than that is handled at your own risk. Because if you do meet Anthony, you can be sure of one thing. You have entered the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Sorry. Really insightful. In fact, did you notice Rod Serling even used the biblical picture? Snow in summer. When, when you give unearned trophies, it's deadly. Now, verse 2 in our text describes how the falsely exalted get frustrated, and, and they, they unfairly will curse others. Fools always blame others. It's always someone else's fault. Fools curse others, especially, especially they curse those in authority when the authorities will not bow down to the fool and say, oh, good, good, Anthony, good boy, Anthony, it's good what you did. If they won't do that, they get cursed. Now, 
even though cursing is their main tool, it doesn't land anywhere. I mean, what verse 2 is telling us, a fool's curse has no lasting impact because it's not based on truth. That's not to say it feels good. In fact, it's, it's very burdensome. On the short space of this earthly life, the curses of entitled brats can really be heavy to bear. Look, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 3. A stone is heavy, sand a burden, but aggravation from a fool outweighs them both. Aggravation from fools is weighty indeed. Their mocking and curses go nowhere, but nonetheless they are burdensome to those who live under their fascism. William McGurn recently summarized, I think, really well the current American Twilight Zone. Look what he wrote. He said, the orthodoxy dominating civilization is no longer set by even a residually Judeo-Christian ethos. This new orthodoxy comes with a new enforcer, too. When it comes to rooting out heresy and dissent, uh, what the Inquisition once accomplished with torture and dungeons, today's media does far more efficiently with relentless promotion of voices and ideas it once amplified and equally relentless neglect of voices and ideas it once ignored. Mockery and contempt are reserved for anyone who won't tell Anthony he's a good boy. I'm sorry, mockery and contempt are reserved for anyone who won't sign on. Close quote. Of course, that leads to a great question, one you were probably asking in your teenage Groot voice, I'm Groot, which we know means, which we know means this, what can we do? I mean, how can we help ourselves and others grow out of our cursing, entitled, agree with me or I turn you into jack-in-the-box foolishness? Great question, Groot. Thank you for asking. The answer is to train, don't react. Train, don't react. Look at verse 3. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the backs of fools. This is not describing abuse. It's detailing how you train yourself and others to be useful. Look, 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 at, the, look at, the, at the image. Horses and donkeys were amazing blessings to Iron Age culture, to Iron Age agriculture. No one with any sense would harm them. And yet, those animals always had to be trained for productivity. In the same way, fools, including fools like each of us, must be trained in order to be useful. But sadly, our most common response to foolishness is not to train, it is to react. When one reacts, one achieves nothing. Look, Proverbs 29, verse 9. If a wise man goes to court with a fool, there will be ranting and raving... But no resolution. There is no resolution when you react in the same way as the fool. Fighting fire with fire only gets everyone burned. By contrast, training can make us into bridled, useful donkeys. Oh, we're still donkeys, but at least we're useful donkeys after training. One of my friends, a very wise couple, they have reared eight children. And from the day their first child turned one year old, they made a handmade sign that has been prominent on their refrigerator ever since. And it just says, train don't react. Train, don't react. And that sign, by the way, was not just about disciplining their kiddos. It was for mom and dad as well. When our own foolishness is revealed, when, when, when we find out we're walking by the flesh and not by God's Spirit, we need to train, not react. And all of us need this training. Read with me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. You get the underlined text. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Thank you. As I prepared for this study, I sent a bunch of uh, preparation notes to our elders, and in one of the notes, I sent this sentence. Even for those changed by faith in Messiah, even for Christians, practical Scripture must be applied regularly so the believer can be trained, transformed by wisdom. In response, Brian Behrman, one of the elders, uh, sent me this wonderful note. He, uh, he said this, Wayne, that brought, back to my, uh, that brought me back to my youth when I was playing competitive tennis. 
I would spend hours upon hours on the court making my forehand, backhand, serve, etc. permanent. I spent all the practice time making my swings permanent, not for the beginning of the match when the stress and pressure were fairly light, but for the times in the match when things were tight. If I did not put all that work in outside my matches, my swing would have broken down under stress and I would revert back to old habits. In addition to practice, I had to have a good coach training me in proper mechanics. As you know, it's the same in life. If I'm training myself outside of life matches through Bible study, prayer, serving, etc., I'll be ready when the stress in life comes. I handle it properly. I don't fall back into bad habits. We have to constantly be in good training to make permanent our reliance on God's wisdom. Close quote. All God's people said, amen. All right, so take our verse and take Brian's example, and let's look at these three questions. Ask yourself these three questions. These are really important. Question number one, what bad habits am I leaving in my life practice? Think of it like this. Here's one way you can get to what your bad habits are. What is my standard reaction? When I don't train, when I react, what am I like? Uh, Think about stress in particular. When I'm stressed, how do I break down? What do I do? Those are probably... Those are probably bad habits that I'm continuing to reinforce. Question number two, what good training is part of my life practice? Um, How how am I walking in step with God's Spirit? How am I living according to His absolute morality? And and as, as foolish as we all are, every one of you believers in Christ, there are arenas in which you and I really are, we really are practicing well. We're doing all the right moves so that it becomes permanent. And then there's a third question I want you to ask. What specific steps can I begin today to, to lower the former, the bad habits, and raise the latter? My good practices. What specific steps can I begin today that will help me make wisdom permanent? Okay, you thinking? Now, some brave soul, raise your hand and give me an answer to number three. What is something that can be done by, by someone, not you, of course, you're perfect, but other people can do to, to make sure that they're getting rid of bad habits and reinforcing good ones? Yes, what do you got, Randy? Read the, Read the Bible. Excellent. Brilliant idea. Very good. Somebody else? Raise your hand. Yes. What's that? Be accountable. Yeah, that's right. Be in relationship, accountable. And, and you know, that's not easy. Um, I mean, it, it is. It's not difficult to find someone in a church. But the difficulty is we read in Hebrews, right, about how no training fee- seems, seems happy at the moment. All discipline seems difficult at the moment, but in the end, it, it leads to peace and righteousness. So think about accountability. You're on your way to your life group, right? And uh, I, your life groups are perfect, but the ones that I've been a part of over the years, this is kind of the way it goes, okay? You're driving to life group, and you're like, ah, oh, I can't. These, uh, just, I'm so tired. I have so much to do. I can't believe we're going, right? I don't want to be in these relationships and be engaged with and accountable these people. I just, can I just send them Christmas cards? I don't want to do, right? I, okay, it's only me, but just suppose you can relate. But, but every time on the way home, what do you like when you're driving home? Man, those, what a blast. Those people are so, I mean, except that one guy, he's a jerk, but that's okay. We love him anyway. I mean, you're right. You're just, it's so great. I'm so blessed. I'm so glad I had somebody to talk, Right? doesn't seem useful at the moment, doesn't seem pleasant at the moment, but it always leads fruit of righteousness. That, that is something I can emphasize. Very good. Give me one more. I haven't had anything from this side. You're letting me down. Yeah, Keith. Identify the bad habits and call them bad. Identify the bad habits and call them bad. Call them bad. It's not, oh, good boy, Anthony. Yeah, no, it's bad. And it, and it may be something that people in your life have told you is good, but Scripture will show us otherwise. All right. Now, read verses 4 through 5. 
4 through 5. Uh, um, verse 4. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. Uh, on the right side of our notes, we headline these verses, Use Discretion in Responding to Fools. Now, they seem to be in conflict, don't they? Verse 4 and verse 5 seem to be saying opposite things. Actually, there's no conflict at all. Solomon and Hezekiah are telling us to read the situation with discretion. You see, the ethics don't change. The ethics don't change, but the application of the ethic depends upon the audience situation. Uh, for example, Jesus in the New Testament gave really similar to this strange back-to-back -back statements. Okay, He was in one place, and he looked at the disciples talking about these people, and he told them, hey, the one who is not for me is against me. Soon after that, in a different place, Jesus is with the disciples. They're talking about another audience, and Jesus says, hey, the one who's not against me is for me. Now, those seem those seem counterintuitive does or counterproductive even but to the disciples and this is fascinating you know what's fascinating about that passage for once they weren't confused I mean you read the you read the gospels these guys are confused all the time they got this because they were there they understood the power of the context the difference was the audience you see one set of people actually believed in Jesus so even when they needed correction about their foolishness they were for Jesus they were not against him the other group had rejected Jesus so no matter how nice they looked on the surface they actually were fools deep down they were against the lord right in a similar way, the situational context guides how we respond to fools, depending on the audience. Sid Buzzle gave a great explanation of this in his book on Proverbs. I put it in your notes. Take a look. He says, the two sayings belong together. They, they complement each other. The point is that one should not be drawn down to a fool's level. That's verse 4. But at times he must use the fool's language to refute the fool so he doesn't become conceited. That's verse 5. Wisdom is needed to understand, to determine when to apply verse 4 and when to apply verse 5. And then he says this, the Jewish Talmud, that's the collection of rabbinic writings, the Talmud suggests that verse 4 pertains to foolish comments that can be ignored, and verse 5 refers to erroneous ideas that must be corrected. Close quote. Now, looking at verses 6 through 10, they teach us don't trust the untrustworthy or the unproven. Look in verse 10. Do you see those passing by? The point is esteem is earned. It has to be so in a fallen world where each of us is so very foolish by nature. God says, until you know someone well, don't trust them with anything of consequence. To make sure we understand, he enumerates a number of important things that should not be the responsibility of the untrustworthy. Do you see it? A message, a proverb, which probably means wisdom, honor, proverb again, and, and um, hiring. Those are things you don't, you don't give work. Now, this isn't saying we shouldn't train people. There are times to stretch people, there are times to, to grow them, to give them responsibility, but if you trust someone who hasn't shown a core competency, you are setting yourself up for disaster, and I do mean disaster. Look at the results, look at the results. A person who trusts the untrustworthy or the unproven cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. In case you don't get the idea, God goes on. Is like lame legs that hang limp is like binding a stone in a sling. It's like a stick with thorns brandished in the hand of a drunkard, like an archer who ruins, wounds everyone. Fire at will. Poor will. It's awful. One metaphor, four similes. We learn that trusting the untrustworthy causes impotence. It inflicts damage. Scott Adams has made an entire career out of observing this dynamic. The Dilbert cartoons are all about this. I just want to show you two of his 
Dozens and dozens of cartoons that illustrate the foolishness of trusting the untrustworthy. Uh, the pointy-haired boss is talking to the big boss, and he says, one of my employees keeps embellishing his accomplishments. Here's the big boss's answer. If he works in engineering, fire him. If he works in marketing, promote him. <laughs> That's funny. Pointy-haired boss says, he doesn't work at all. Ooh, sounds like you have a leader on your hands. Here's, a, here's another one. Uh, the big boss is talking to Catbert, uh, the evil HR director. I've been mentoring Wally for over a week, and he's still useless. But we need to promote him to vice president so it looks as if my mentoring works. Catbert says, that might be a bad idea in the long run. What is this long run people keep harping about? Unless you want to be like a Dilbert boss, don't promote the untrustworthy. Now, we'll come back to our last two Proverbs. Okay, we'll come back to 11 and 12. But first, I'd like you to slide down. Let's look at a special subset of untrustworthy fool, okay? Don't trust the untrustworthy. Well, here's a special kind of untrustworthy person, the lazy person, the slacker. Verse uh, 13, the slacker says, there's a lion in the road, lion in the public square. A door turns on its hinges and a slacker on his bed. A slacker buries his hand in the bowl. He's just too weary to bring it to his mouth. In his own eyes, a slacker is wiser than seven men who can answer sensibly. Beware the slacker. He calls him bomb threats just to get off work. That, that's what the lions, they didn't have bombs, but they had lions, so he's calling in a bomb threat. The slacker has no concern for others, only her own comfort. The slacker simply does not arise. Look at the incisive depiction in verse 15. The slacker is spoiled. Here's the situation. He has plenty to eat. and In fact, he is, he is so blessed that he just flat out quits enjoying things. He just wallows in the provision with contempt and laziness. In other words, a slacker is like this. It's just so tiring to get up and actually take a drink. Most horribly, the cat, I mean the slacker, that was for you, Darren, is not open to learning. You realize that? He already knows it all, right? Do you see that? More on that in a moment, but that may be the worst aspect of the slacker. He already knows it all. All right, now jump, jump back up to verse 11. Uh, verse 11, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. Foolishness is addicting and it is instinctive. This is ubiquitous, folks. If you will just look for this, you will see repeat stupidity all the time. It, it, has beco it becomes an instinctive human habit. I just want to give you a few examples. I have this friend who drives. Um, she drives with one foot on the gas and the other foot while she's going on the brake. I know. Is that horrible? It's insane. And she, know, she knows it's bad. She knows it's actually hurting her car, her expensive investment. By the way, if anyone here does this, I hope you're so convicted by this. Um, because, because we're all so tempted to rear-end you when that light's on all the time. Anyway, sorry, that's not right. But, um, but this, this person does both all the time. And she knows it's stupid, and yet she finds herself going back and doing it over and over and over. All right? Um, battered women keep going back to losers. They just keep going back all the time. Gamblers keep thinking, ooh, this time will be different, right? 
Alcoholics go back to their drink. Parents keep employing the same dumb strategies that never have worked. The list is nearly endless. And the idea is graphically summarized in chapter 27. Um, look, at, look at Proverbs uh, 27, 22. In fact, I'd like you to read this with me, please. Let's read this together. Proverbs 27, 22. Though you grind a fool... By the way, this is hyperbole. It's not, you don't really, they're not really saying you grind a fool. I just, I'm just trying to save your kids' lives. Because you're basically fools. I don't want your parents... Okay, sorry. All right, let's do it again. Uh, Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with grain, you will not separate his foolishness from him. Thank goodness we aren't like that, right? I mean, we can always walk away from our stupidity. We're not fools. I mean, you and I can stop doing goofy things anytime because we know better, Right? wrong. The fool is in the mirror. Look, look at verse 12. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. The fool refuses to see his own folly. He's kidding himself. He's fooling himself. It, here's the way it usually happens. It's usually by cynically looking down on and laughing at the foolishness in other people. That is, That is humanity's number one favorite way to avoid having to look at the fool in the mirror is to instead spend my time laughing at all the lunacy and stupidity of other people. Tommy Shaw nailed the problem when he wrote about a friend of his who refused to recognize the fool in the mirror. This is really insightful poetry. He says, you see the world through your cynical eyes. You're a troubled young man, I can tell, and you're fooling yourself if you don't believe it. You're kidding yourself if you don't believe it. Look closely at verse 12. See the phrase, in his own eyes? Now, when that construction is used in Hebrew, it indicates a person's self-concept. We borrowed the same idea in our tongue. We talk about in my eyes, so so we we get the idea it makes sense to us. But there is a brilliant, subtle play going on that does not show up in the English. This is marvelous. Look at this. The Semitic term for I is ein, okay? Just like one in German, ein. Uh, that's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say ein. One, two, three. Ein. Yeah, ein. Okay, mein. Okay. But ein doesn't just mean I in Hebrew. Ein, the exact same word, also means a spring, as in, as in living water. So when a Hebrew writes, wise in his own eyes, it's describing someone who thinks that he or she is the source. They are their own living water. They are their own wellspring of life. Again, this comes wholesale into the New Testament. Now go back to Galatians 6, 8. Remember what we read? Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. Foolishness. But those who live to please the Spirit, who recognize that that God is the, the truth. God is the source of living water. God knows what's right. Those who live to please the absolute of God's word, the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Do you see the issue in wisdom versus foolishness? The fool doesn't recognize the dummy in the mirror. He sows to his own flesh. He is wise in his own eyes. He believes he is the source of living water. He thinks he is wise. By contrast, the wise person lives by the Spirit. This is why Jesus did this. John chapter 7, uh, verse 37. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he did this in the middle of crowded Jerusalem. If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about what, everybody? The Spirit. Isn't that fascinating? He didn't say it about you're going to be so wonderful. You're your own living water. You're your own well. You're your own arbiter of truth. You're your own Thomas Hobbes. 
No, what he said is that there is a spirit who is the truth. He is the living water. The Doobie brothers would say this is what a fool believes. He believes in himself instead of God. The fool thinks he's the living water instead of Jesus. Now, lest we think this text only applies to other people, go back to verse 4. Verse 4, take a look at what we read. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will heart, and that's not the slide I wanted. Verse 4, those who don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or what's that word, everybody? You will be like him yourself. Sid Buzzle, in his book, had a fascinating observation. He said, you, in verse 4, is emphatic, and it may be translated, you, even you. And that, friends, is why we're studying this series. We, me, you, even you, need God to guide us. We need God to develop us in practices that make permanent. And it all starts with wisdom. Let's look at one last passage. Uh, Proverbs 25, verse 1. These two are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Chapters 25 through 29 of Proverbs are, are that collection. It's the re-recording of Solomon's hits as collected by Hezekiah, and it's what we're going to immerse ourselves in over the coming weeks. Look at the theme of our study. I put this in your notes, the theme of our study, what the study's all about. Most of us think like children, assuming that we can live half-heartedly, performing somewhat shoddily in many areas, only to turn on a magic switch when important issues are at stake. As high-performing athletes know, this is not realistic. How we practice determines how we perform. Hezekiah's collection of Solomon's greatest hits takes a mature approach to life, anticipating great legacies achieved through regular wisdom. Now, it's not going to take us too long to learn from Hezekiah's collection, because get this, his archivists only drew from 10 different themes. They looked through all of Solomon's stuff that they wanted to pull together, and they just chose ones that had to do with 10 big ideas. The first big idea is learning from the past. Learning from the past, specifically, learning from the past in order to establish our present and our future. Their second theme that you're going to see in 25 through 29 is humility. Third is dealing with authority. How do we deal with authority? How do we handle authority when we have it? How do we handle it when other people have it? Their fourth theme is words and speech. Number five is about community. Number six is uh, conflict. How do we handle conflict? Seven, self-control. Eight's what we've talked about today, fools, foolishness. Nine, the righteous use of money. And the tenth theme is troublemakers and wickedness. I am so excited to investigate each of these with you. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, let's give the final word to Warren Wearsby. Uh, Dr. Wearsby said in his book, Be Skillful, the book of Proverbs is about godly wisdom, how to get it and how to use it. It's about priorities and principles, not get-rich-quick schemes or success formulas. It tells you not how to make a living, but how to be skillful in the lost art of making a life. Close quote. And folks, it takes time to build to last. It takes time to make a life that lasts. There is no magic pill that builds castles in one day. Are you willing to commit to the work involved in building a life that lasts? Yes or no? Are you willing to commit to the work? Yes or no? Very good. Well, it starts by seeking the Lord because He is the source of living water. Let's pray. Lord, I... Thank you so much for my wonderful brothers and sisters. And I feel drawn back to the big questions that we briefly examined earlier. Lord, what bad habits am I leaving in my life practice? What, what standard, what have I accepted? It really doesn't matter the source. But what are the, what are the things that need eliminated so I can make my practice healthy and permanent? 
And Lord, what are, the good, what are the good things? Let me appreciate them. Let me thank you for them. Help me see what are the good training that is part of my, what is the good training as part of my life practice? How am I walking in step with your spirit? Lord, what specific steps can I begin today to, to lower the former and to, and to raise the latter? Lord, I pray you'll, you'll bring that to each of us. I can think of a lot of specific steps in the Bible, Father. Prayer, accountability with people, studying Proverbs, repentance, learning from history, practicing solitude, etc., etc. But Lord, I don't want people to be limited by my applications. So I pray your spirit engages every single Christian, guiding each one in a specific life plan for wisdom. By your leadership, may each of us truly build to last. Amen.